this football pod Booing and the jeering and the anticipation and then as he strikes it there's that intake of breath because he puts the bloody ball 14 uh, yards the, the second he hits it I knew we were under pressure like. subscribe to the football pod on the OTB Sports app now OTB AM with Gillette get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar I'm delighted to say Daniel Lambert, who is the COO of Bohemians, is with us in studio. Um, we wanted to get you in because you were tweeting last week about the the current situation where a lot of 18-year-olds are joining League One clubs and you had an idea about maybe how the league might counteract the issue of our best young players being sold for what seems like pennies on the dollar as opposed to fair value Um and I just thought it would be interesting to have that conversation and start to learn a little bit about it. So can you talk to us maybe about what inspired you to to put this out there? Um, what was the what was the bit where you think, OK, we need to have a conversation about this? Yeah, I think, look, we've seen since Brexit, I suppose, that the, the important point before this is probably that, you know, pre-Brexit, the best young players uh, were leaving Ireland before they had any profile, I suppose. So you had junior clubs and Kevin's, Joey's. Belvedere and others producing a lot of good young players and they'd leave Ireland at 15, 16, 17 before they'd broken into League of Ireland teams at all and they'd go in big numbers and we'd see them later on. So you'd either see them in two ways, players who'd returned home um, and there's a lot of them who come and play in the league or players who, who made it over there and then you see them at a later age. But now we're seeing that you know with Brexit that players are breaking into League of Ireland teams, making a big impact, they're, becoming, you know, they're, on, our, they're on our radars and then we're losing them quite quickly. And I suppose there's no, like, you know, the Irish League isn't going to compete with the, with the UK in terms of quality of football or the, the wages that it can offer that's for sure and we can get a lot better and we should and it's not unusual that a young player will want to leave but I think that um, you know there are at times release clauses and it's not exclusively that like you know we should say at Bohemians we had two players with release clauses who, who've left recently but it, it seems to be a problem for every club and uh, not just for one it's not wholesale but we've seen a lot of players move with clauses recently and I think that the league clubs can cooperate and act in a way that removes that as an option and it will still mean players will leave, but there'll be, I suppose, a fairer fee paid. And we need that to happen as, as we invest in academy systems. And ultimately, look, the international the international team's fortunes are now heavily tied to the League of Ireland because I'd say they're, they're one and the same. Uh, League of Ireland clubs will develop all our international players as we move forward. And we have to ensure that we're in a best position to do that. Oh, so that all the more reason for the clubs to get good funding from the best players who get transferred as opposed to going away cheap. Can you just explain how the release clause actually works? Um, so not, not a specific example of any of your players because we're not looking for you to breach confidentiality or whatever but in principle why are there release clauses why do the clubs agree or feel like they need to agree to a release clause Who who's putting the release clause in and, and what kind of um, percentage or money do you think um, how, just how does it work because it's something that people yeah, don't know about it'll work where you you have a young player let's say at any League of Ireland club maybe age 17, 18 who's beginning to break into a first team um, obviously the players may be shown you know, a lot of potential and an agent will look to insert a release clause that will specify a price that the player can leave the club um, and I suppose there's been an investment in the past you know, we have full-time head of academies now, uh, lots of clubs, we've won at our own club, we're developing better facilities so there's a big investment gone into a large group of players over a long period of time to develop players in all parts of the game and might end up as coaches, League of Ireland players or play internationally but they look to insert these clauses at that point and I suppose the, the rationale is that if, if you don't agree to it they may move to another League of Ireland club. They're not at the point where the player is in demand in the UK or anything like that, so they're showing potential and they may or may not move, but it puts pressure, I suppose, on one club 
where they need to keep the player. The player is becoming an important part of the squad, or is becoming an important part. That the risk is that they go to another club who'll agree to a release. Um, the the best young Barcelona players have just signed. Or sorry, the best young the three Brazilians have just signed uh, Real Madrid new contracts, and the release clause is five hundred million and a billion and a billion. And you're like, okay, this is all ridiculous. Uh, I suspect the release clauses. The numbers are weighted in favour of the agent being able to phone a club in England and say I can get you this player he's clearly worth a load more than this but the release clause is is it 10, 15, 20, 25,000 is it, are they the figures we're, we're talking about? No for, for us they would be much higher than that to be right. fair but I think that we've seen like you know our players are in demand if you think of someone like, like Evan Ferguson probably the best example from Bowes in the last couple of years he you know, made his Premier League debut last year came on against Burnley for Brighton 17 years old we look at players who've gone over. Georgie Kelly will play in the championship this year. So, like our players are in demand because they're good players. You know, we've really good players coming from the country, and we're developing better players all the time. I think, um, so they, they wouldn't be that low, but I still think they aren't obviously at market value. And the idea here isn't to how how much below market value are they? Just to give people an idea of what we're. It, you know, it might be fifty percent below, might right. be hundred percent below. So you might be getting maybe half what, what you think you should get. Um, and I just think that it, it's so important that that could pay for four staff, or that could pay for you know five more players to come in to help the first team, which will make more people want to come and see the team, which kind of builds the momentum, right? So like it's it's not catastrophic, but it's a huge amount of money that we're talking about in terms of overall revenue. Yeah, and it shouldn't like the the idea here isn't like if a young player wants to progress, like no league of Ireland club blocks the progression of a player. Um, and everybody wants to see an individual reach their potential. So I think, ultimately, I think you know if we command better fees, the player, um, the agent himself, the clubs, there aren't really any losers to it. It's just to ensure that we get to a point where we're getting market value for the players. Okay, so what you had asked for in, in your um, tweets last week was that the, the League of Ireland clubs would come together and act uh, in concert. Um, so a huge amount of, League of, of young players are now moving from the League of Ireland to League One in particular. It's an obvious result of Brexit. Previously, scores went annually at younger ages. Now they've entered League of Ireland teams and can roll that on there. And are visible and delivering impressive performances. The balance has shifted from large numbers of unknown talent to a smaller number of older proven talents. Clubs are getting better add-ons, but we need to collectively improve the upfront fees being achieved. And so um, the impediment to fees are agent get-out clauses. These can be counteracted by clubs having a collective agreement to set a certain level where no club breaks it and delivers higher fees for all. That's the that's the bit here that's most contentious or most ambitious, depending on, like, can the clubs agree that they're going to work together for everybody's benefit? Do you think they can? I think they can, yeah. I think, look, you know, we need to, I suppose, like, as we progress here, we're talking about the FAI. I've obviously moved the underage academy system into League of Ireland clubs. There's been brilliant developments we've seen, and there will be a lot more developments in terms of infrastructure by all clubs in the next couple of years. And I think it's essential that we, as a league, you know, cooperate off the pitch to to make the pie bigger for everybody, really, to improve our league. Um, you know, it, it is the case. It, does football reach its potential in this country? It really doesn't. You know, I grew up playing GAA. The GAA, I think, does reach its potential. And you go and you see an All-Ireland final, you see an inter-county game in, in really good facilities. But League of Ireland, we have the participation numbers. There needs to be multiple approaches. It includes government investments in Stadia. We visited Union Berlin two weeks ago and they showed us their new academy, which has been built, 50% funded by the German government. You know, and this makes sense on lots of levels because it enables a better team, national team. It allows more players to progress and reach their potential. It allows fans, coaches, players, staff to have a better experience of football in Ireland. And this is just one part of that. But I really do think that, you know, where League of Ireland clubs have been in the past and where they'll be in the next 10 years are, are really poles apart because we are going to develop the best young players. So what needs to happen for the clubs to all come together? Is it um, is there a simple mechanism for this where everybody says we're going to agree to this and it's it's not like written in stone or does it? do you feel it needs to be like a, a kind of 
League of Ireland charter where everybody signs up and says we're going to try and increase everybody's value, the value of everybody's playing stock and the way we're going to do that is multifaceted. We're going to lobby government for, for funding, for uh, resources, not just for stadiums but also for staff and investment at that level. But equally, we're going to make sure that we charge the right price for our players. Will everybody sign up for that? Yeah, I don't think it needs to be a charter. I think it, you know a clever, a clever strategy and a thought-out strategy is needed for things like government investment, which is obviously part of the FAI strategy. But I think when it comes to something like an agreement like this, I think it can be done. There's a forum called the PCA, the Premier Clubs Alliance, where we meet kind of every two weeks. Um, and I, th- I do think it does require a level of trust, obviously, because if, if it's a case that Club A is talking to an agent and agrees that you know they aren't going to agree to a release, that they need to be confident that Club B and C will do likewise. So it does require maybe a degree of trust that hasn't been demonstrated in the past, but I don't think that's to say it can't be in the future. Okay. Um, what was the feedback like from, from people who saw your idea out there? Are people generally broadly in favour of it? Yeah, well, obviously the people who contacted me were because that's naturally what happens, I suppose. You know, several clubs contacted to say that they were interested in this, that they would like to discuss it. So I think it'll definitely be discussed, hopefully. Um, but like I said, this is just one part. It, it just It's something that we've seen, you know, we saw several examples from several clubs in the past 12 months. And to me, it's quite an easy fix. And again, it's not to say that this is in any way detrimental to a player's development. It isn't. Players will develop and will move. Well, the other thing is that the quality of player is is has been clearly demonstrated over the last five, ten years in particular, where the older players who go over are making first-team debuts much quicker than the ones who went over. Obviously, that you know, it's, it's very natural that they'd be further along. But that the, it's not a barrier anymore to playing in the League of Ireland to go to play in League One or the Championship. No, it's, it's not at all. And actually, it's much better for player welfare. Like, we've heard stories and we've all seen it at clubs. Anyone who's worked at a club, you get young players who've come back, who've maybe spent four or five, six years in the UK. Um, you know, they've forgotten education in terms of leaving cert. And it can be difficult if you don't make it in the game to come home where you've missed the key part of your life's development. Now they have the opportunity, to, you know, to finish their education, to stay in Ireland, um, and then to move at 18 with much better opportunities and to have an actual affinity to a League of Ireland club. So if it doesn't work out, to come back and maybe slot back into a system and to a culture and an environment that you're familiar with in the past. Somebody who left a junior club, they mostly had no involvement or exposure to a League of Ireland club. But the fundamental point here, I suppose, is that if we are to develop players, top players, we have to ensure that we have systems and processes and infrastructure and facilities to enable that. And that will only come about through more revenue coming into the league. And there's several ways that can happen. You know, I think things like a broadcast deal or large commercial agreements you know, they're on the wish list, but ultimately they'll probably come after stadium development, whereas this is something that can be fixed quite rapidly without huge infrastructure, you know, improvements. Yeah. It can happen through an agreement, through a conversation. Yeah. Owen? Uh, Daniel, when it comes to the interest in players in the League of Ireland right now, it seems from the outside looking in that there is just kind of more of a, a global or a continental feel to clubs that are interested in League of Ireland players, people going beyond just Ireland and the UK. Is, is that the reality in, inside in the league from your own perspective? Yeah, well, from players going out, we've, like the Brexit rules mean that a player is you can move at 16 to the continent. Well, you have to wait till 18, so that's why you've seen, I suppose, a number of players move recently to the continent. And you know, when you speak to heads of academy at the moment, some do say that there are certain really high potential players who would benefit from a move to an environment that's perhaps you know a better environment, a more advanced environment, as we seek to to, to reach the same stage in terms of players in. Obviously, we brought a player in yesterday from Germany. I do think the league, historically, there's been kind of two-way movement. It's players coming from the UK and vice versa. And I think that we do need to look at other markets. Um, it's, it's obviously been down to cultural and language kind of reasons in the past, but I don't think that that's a reason to not look at, at other markets and we should look both ways. When you bring a player in from Germany, how much work and scouting goes into that move? 
Um, you, obviously, look, you've got analysts who you, there's things, a lot of systems now, Huddle and White Scout and other programs that you know clubs are using globally, and you can do quite a lot of work without travelling. Um, in terms of bringing somebody in, then it's really about you know them being comfortable moving into a new environment. The player we brought in yesterday was really interested in Ireland. He, he speaks good English. He he wanted to come here, and I think that that's important because it is a shift. And we we've had we have had players in the past, I suppose, who've moved to places you know where they do find it's culturally a difficult fit, uh, especially around language. So, could the FAI have a role in brokering this agreement between the clubs? I don't think so. I don't, I don't actually think it's an FAI okay. issue, to be honest. I think the, you know, the FAI, they administer the league, they promote the league, but something like this really, I think, is outside of their remit. Okay. Um, and probably better if the if the uh, league clubs start cooperating and, and driving initiatives like this without waiting for the FAI to take the lead on it. Yeah, definitely. And the FAI have taken the lead on a lot of things, like the move to academy football has been excellent. You know, there's, there's been a lot of new staff come in. There's a proper league office at the moment. And the FAI strategy, you know, was badly needed and there's some good, really good things in there. But I do think that fundamentally, you know, we mentioned it earlier, but when we look at, like, you look at Tala Stadium as an example and the crowds that Shamrock Rovers have gotten recently, like, that's a, you know, a municipal stadium. It makes a lot of sense. It's what's to be delivered for Daily Mount and, and there'll hopefully be more news on Daily Mount shortly. But we look at stadia around the country. It's a simple model. These aren't usually expensive stadia. We're talking about, you know, Derry cities, I think, had public investment as well. So if you take that you've had, you know, Tala and Derry as two, you know, you can have eight more stadia in the Premier League we're not talking about hundreds of millions of euros here um, I think with you know perhaps 10 million for each you could do quite a big improvement some of them are in better condition than others Daily Mount's quite poor but we have seen you know Richmond Park you've seen it in Talca Park you've seen it in Daily Mount you've seen crowds grow um, and they're growing with facilities that are below par um, and that aren't what people should experience for the most part with some exceptions You talked about the academy system um, really working and we're starting to see the fruits in the international team I think um you know, the quality of football that we're seeing from our young players and the fact that uh, some of the best, best clubs around Europe are now picking our 16-year-olds would all suggest that everything is going in the right direction and yet there does still seem to be this kind of faction uh, within the schoolboy clubs who are looking at the League of Ireland clubs going, you know, what's going on here? Why, why have we been left behind? Does that manifest itself at all on a day-to-day basis or is that exclusively in the committee rooms of the FAI where that kind of stuff actually has an impact? Yeah, I don't think it manifests itself usually, and you'd have to be sympathetic, and you'd have to understand, I suppose, the position of you know a junior club who perhaps has, have developed players for you know for fifty, sixty, seventy years, and would have had, I suppose, underage coaches there that were probably the most qualified coaches in the country. That, that's got a, it was a difficult move. I do think having a, a football pyramid, you know, from top to bottom, makes an awful lot of sense for the game. And I suppose, there, you know, in any change, some people end up in a better position and some people end up in a worse position. But I do think that you have players developed through League of Ireland clubs. We had a system prior to that where you sort of had two silos. You had a pyramid that was the, the men's senior game, which has now thankfully become men's and women's. And then you had uh, junior clubs and there wasn't any crossover really unless players were returning back. So I can understand frustrations there, but I really do think that that move was... You know, a really good move, and has it worked itself out? It, it, like, because it, it feels, it feels even just reading um, Dan McDonald's piece yesterday about the the FAI um, AGM this year that there's still simmering discontent, and it hasn't quite gone away with the DDSL going back to winter football. It's like it's just little pockets who are kind of interested in um, the status quo or trying to reestablish the status quo when actually it seems like the status quo didn't work for us at all. Yeah, and I think look, when you make a big change, there'll always be some people, I suppose, who, who are unhappy and will try to return to the, to the previous position. I don't think that will happen in this case. And I do think things like alignment of seasons are really important for player development and to enable, you know, com- uh, align transfer windows to enable, you know, just alignment across the board in terms of players moving from one level to another or from, you know, and that can be either way. Um, so I think you'll probably see a period of time where there still is some of that, but hopefully it will then, 
kind of fizzle out. It doesn't really impact us in terms of a League of Ireland club, but you, you do, you know, you'll hear other people's opinions, you'll read about them, and you maybe hear them from other meetings. And, you know, I can see the position that someone would be in there, but I do firmly believe, and I think it goes without saying, that like the, that system of a of a pathway from, from a young age up makes a lot of sense. Well, it's the only way forward, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. So overall, it sounds like you're quite... Um, confident about the future of the league um, enthusiastic about the future of the league is that fair because there's definitely been periods of the time in the past where uh, it was it was less coherent it was less um, it was more fractured and it looked like cooperation of the type you were talking about would have been almost impossible so it feels like maybe we're entering a new era yeah, I think I think we definitely are. Look, I think you know we've mentioned the FAI, the changes that have happened there. It's obviously going to be a long road for the association, given the level of debt that they have. But there's been really good people have come in. You know, they have clear plans and they're working to, you know, a plan that makes sense to clubs for the most part. And um, you know, you can always have improvements in terms of promotion of the league. But I do think that just if you simply look at clubs and look at the number of staff they have at Bohemians, you know, we'd one member of staff who was Lynn is with Bohemians forty years this year, and that would have been our you know non-playing side of the club. You know, in the office now we've kind of four, five, six staff, you know, between full and part-time. And likewise, many other clubs, you've seen people come in full-time, COOs, CEOs, you know, commercial people at all clubs. And I think that that, you know, has obviously led to a professionalisation amongst clubs and, you know, more cooperation off the pitch. So I do think we're going in the right direction, but the, the big elephant in the room is Stadia. It's the one that everyone points to, but it really needs to happen because without that, you can get to a certain level. Like, we're sold out every game, which which sounds great, but it's awful because a lot of young kids can't come to Stadium. New families have moved to Fibsborough people who've, who want to come and can't um, and that's a bad thing uh, but it's happened at a lot of grounds it's not just Stadium that's sold out so we do need to we do need to approve, improve upon that quite quickly and from that flows so many other things not just revenue yeah but, it, uh, but the revenue allows everything else to happen so it's kind of a, it is chicken and egg so what, what's the big block on that is it that the government haven't quite fully understood the opportunity that's there with football or why do you think we haven't had the investment that we should have had in those stadiums uh, my own personal opinion is that football is fragmented in the country. You know, I think if you're, you know, a politician and you look at the GAA and you have the parochial model, you probably have quite a, I suppose, a formulated ask from a local TD. Uh, you know, and all, all politics starting locally, maybe even at councillor level. Whereas in football, you tend to have in any area a multitude of clubs. Um, so you take an area like I grew up in Finglas, and I think there was 40 teams. My dad ran one of them. You know, and he had a one-team club. And they play in a park and they operate over a porta cabin and they're yeah. lobbying the local guy for, you know, another porta cabin. And I think that unfortunately in football maybe over time that that's, that fragmentation has led to has led to kind of a mixed messaging for for politicians and that needs to be more formulated, which is what the FAI are doing at the moment. And I do think that when you talk about a game with so many participants to have a league in our country where, you know, you've great clubs with great histories, but playing in the t- in the stadium they are, it, it really is poor form. Um, and part of that blame lies with the FAI part of it lies with the clubs themselves but I do think now as we all look to move forward that you know I think that there, some of that burden should shift to government um, and the municipal model delivers a lot you know it doesn't it's not just a football stadium you know you can have integrated community facilities and it can be used for other events so yeah I, I mean we, we've talked about this before uh, Vinnie Parth has talked about you know in Tala there's like uh, four different facilities all getting maybe 50 grand or 100 grand in grants but actually if that was one facility it would be absolutely amazing and all four clubs could be run out of it they would just have to share it and that's the bit of cooperation that maybe is easier in a GA club because you go well that's your territory and that's your territory and that's it and nobody else is allowed to set up there whereas actually anybody can set up a football club really if they want and yeah. and uh, make that application so that that's a, a long hard road but in terms of daily mount how transformative would it be if you just had that facility working functioning properly as a community amenity in Fibsborough but also a great place to go and watch football 
Oh, you couldn't uh, you couldn't overemphasize the change that would make to the club in terms of like you know we've got about sixty playing teams now, boys and girls. So many of those kids can't can't come to games. They said you know it, it, even in a stadium where where you don't have enough capacity, you've got a mix of groups that maybe shouldn't mix. You've got your singing section beside your family section beside older people, and um, it would be massive. And uh, you know it really is. I think we need to move away too from this model. We sometimes hear of like a six thousand all seater or an eight thousand all seater. Like other leagues are moving back to terracing, you know, you see it in the Premier League, you see it in the SPL. We went to Union Berlin two weeks ago and there was 18,000 people at the game and there was 15,000 standing, you know. And we need to get away from this idea that you need to bring in teams of architects and design something that looks amazing that's an all seater because very often, as a football fan, you want to be close to the pitch and you want to stand where a large percentage of people do. So I don't think there needs to be huge cost to it. It just needs to be designed in a way that, you know, fans want to enjoy the game. Yeah. And then your facilities are multi-use, as you said, which is crucial and you see it in other countries as well. Yeah. Owen? Daniel, do you know how many, uh, what percentage of daily amount you'd actually be able to, or how many more tickets you'd be able to sell, how, how, what the estimate would be on revenue if there was a, a facility that was that was up to scratch and, and something that... That, that you feel you could get more people into? Yeah, like we'd anticipate that a crowd would grow by about 70%. So we took, say, 2,000 2, people per game, and this is just an average, obviously. If you look at something, I suppose, like the Bowes Rovers game, and you look at the number that arrives to Tallet, and then what you can sell in daily amount, you can probably mar- marry them too, but it is the derby. So if you say you take 2,000 people and you go on average, you say a 12-year with ticket, you're talking about 45,000 a game, and then you multiply that out by, you know, by your 20 home games, you're nearly a million a year. Um, but that's just the ticket price. Obviously, when people arrive to a stadium, they buy food and drinks and jerseys and programs, and they maybe experience the game, you know, as a young child for the first time, and they return. So, the actual and yeah, and you bring into that commercial revenue, you know, in terms of the visibility for commercial partners, and um, you know, really it becomes it, it, it just it's it's massive, you know. And like I said, we're seeing it. It's not just Bows. We have seen you know many many uh, clubs this year sell out games, and while that's to be celebrated, it's an opportunity lost really. The other thing is the atmosphere creates this momentum behind the league that then becomes unstoppable. If the atmosphere is great at every game, then people want to go and ticket prices can go up, revenue can go up. Of course. People, people yeah. don't mind that because they, it becomes an experience. And I'm not advocating for higher ticket prices, but you know what I mean? There's like an opportunity there. I think it really brings in the broadcast deal as well because you know you saw, I suppose, last year when we played in Europe, we played three games in the Aviva. You know, brilliant games, brilliant occasion, especially coming out of COVID. But visually, when you look at those games, you know, the, the stadium sets the stage, I suppose. So while the players are the same and the game, you know, maybe of the same quality, it appears in a very different light. And I think that, that that's a really fundamental piece as well, that, you know, with better facilities, I think TV replays your promotion of the league visually. And, if you, you know, if you're behind visually in, in you know, in a social media age, yeah. it just doesn't marry. So what's your ambition for a, a, a broadcast deal? What, what, what's the best case scenario? What would you like? Well, it, it needs to bring in revenue. Like, you know, at the moment, I think... Th- games in the league over the past you know as long as I've been involved really what the benefit to a club is that it benefits your commercial partners it may actually hit your ticket sales a bit so there's no actual financial element really you know LOITV has come in you know obviously during COVID and was great for people but I don't think that that's a long-term solution you know paper game streaming service you know for me isn't isn't the answer Um, but it's totally understandable too from a broadcast perspective the figures aren't there you know the figures have been released by RTE and for the most part they don't justify you know a large amount of games um, and they de- certainly don't justify payment. Yeah, the only thing about that is that, like, if you put a game on now and then no other game for like five, six weeks, and then no other game for five, six weeks, and then two together, how do you build up? How does anybody build up a sense? Okay, this is an appointment to watch. Mm-hmm. Like TV viewing is about habits. You, you can't put one-off games on and go, well, this didn't work. 
So I know. That that always seemed a little bit like a handy excuse to me. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And look, look, there's nobody who'd love a game on each week more than me. But I do think, like I said, it's probably a process, and things like a, a proper broadcast deal probably is at the end of our process where we have, you know, ten stadiums that can hold, you know, between five and eight thousand each that visually, you know, look good, and with more people going in more communities, which will naturally happen with attendances, then there's a greater interest anyway. So the TV numbers would rise. The actual spectacle of the game, you know, would be on a par with other games that you'd expect to see and yeah. other sports. Um, but we're just we're at that kind of point where the, the, the stadium issue is a handicap for all clubs, um, bar one or two. And you know, we have models there. So we we've seen in Tala what a municipal stadium can do in terms of driving up attendances and creating a stadium that, you know, while it's uh, a little bit outside the city, you know, looks amazing, has a big capacity. And, um, and it's a place that people want to go. 100%. Well, Daniel, best of luck with all of it. And thanks, William, because it is really interesting that um, notion that maybe uh, cooperation could help to raise the, the revenue f- that we're getting for players because we all want that to happen and the higher value that the players have sometimes actually makes it easier for them when they get there that the pathway to the first team is like, oh, we've got to put you in here. We've got to give you a chance because we've paid some money for you. So thanks, William, for joining us today. Yeah, no problem. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.